0: Ecclesiastes, number five, chapter five. It says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know what, that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God's in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice. Is known by his many words. Solomon transitions in chapter five to be drawing some conclusions from the first four, cha- four, first four chapters. That's what they're called. I gotta. I'm tired too. So we are. We have to be careful here, because as he transitions here, he never says everything under heaven. He never goes to God, and this is one of those things to that. Um, the question we had yesterday of well, are there ever Is there ever the case where a king's kids come out to be good people too? And the answer, I think, as we're going to go through all of Ecclesiastes, the answer to that is a clear, yeah, of course that happens, but it's much more likely to happen under the sun where a good king puts all their energy and time into kingship and they don't put their time into family and things don't don't go well. But there's another option under the sun, and that's to live a godly lifestyle. So chapter 5 gets to be really tricky because it's good worldly wisdom but it's not necessarily godly wisdom. So it, it, it can be a wise and prudent thing to do these things, but we can't necessarily take them as theology, right? Because we're still in the experiment. We've never left the experiment. So these conclusions, like he's drawing in in chapter in verse 1, walk prudently when you go to the house of God, um, is a different kind of thing. We're talking about religion. So as he's gone through every like worldview that people can have, every like outcome of these worldviews that he's thinking possible. there's one that has to do with being religious, to go to the house of God, but that's um, and, and and in context, it's all been earthly human reasoning um, and and we're in the same boat here. We haven't left that that era of the of the chapter. So as he says that he says, I says in, I said in my heart at the beginning, And then he says, I saw, chapter 1, 16, 17, chapter 2, 1, 12, 15, chapter 3, 10, 17, chapter 4, verses 1 and 7, all clearly marked by human thinking. Under the sun, things he saw, stuff he found in his heart. It's all human thinking. But now we get to this, and the under the sun stuff has been throughout the entire book too. Uh, and, And so we see this pattern of of speech where he's made it very, very clear. So Solomon's intentionally pointing out that there's an earthly version of faith or religiosity that has its own worldview. There are people that kind of live for their religion. And it's just the same as living for anything else. And he reviews the worth of this as a practice without determining if the religion's correct or not. So he's not doing theology here. He's still doing kind of a sociological experiment. That's my point. So they show up. These kinds of people in, in, in our day and age, they would show up at church, they go to church every Sunday, they do religion, and then they go off and they do other things. And it's just a way to do things. So his his advice here, or the walk prudently in verse 1, in the Hebrew is shamar regal, it means to keep your feet. So it's truer, I think, in the, the original Hebrew, basically be what we say is watch your step. Watch your step when you go into the house of God. Keep your feet. So when you go, really in Solomon's time, there were no atheists. Everyone went to some sort of temple, pagan or Jewish. And it was considered foolish or dangerous not to do that sort of thing. So we have directives here that when you do go to this house, there's ways to do it. And it says the house of God, that's that's I think not a good tra- translation because of everything I just said. Because this is under the sun, because this is from things he saw in his heart, And Solomon had the worship of a number of gods, even in his own household. The word God there is Elohim in the Hebrew. And Elohim is not Yahweh. So really, an Elohim is also a plural word. And usually when God gets called like our Lord, my God, we're calling that, that it's a plural word getting used in a singular context. Here, that's not the case. It's a plural word getting used in a plural context. When, walk prudently or watch your step when you go into the house of gods. So it really would apply to any sort of temple or religious system. So when you go here, and he's not using the word Yahweh, he's not being specific to it, any house of worship. And there is some wisdom to this. If you're going to go into a house of worship or a place where they're claiming some sort of wisdom, it makes a ton of sense to listen and and, and at least Tune in when you go into this place. Don't walk into this place and be obnoxious. And there's some wisdom to that. Um, so a generalizable, a generalizable plural use of God there. Um, I think this is a good wisdom for the church today too. If you're going to walk into a church, just go in and be blessed. Like walk prudently when you go into a church. Notice how they interact with each other. Pay attention to how people get along with each other. What do they talk about? How do they interact? And, and there are a number of people that walk into a church and they, they can't stop themselves by, by drawing attention to themselves. But to be prudent and to be thoughtful when you walk into a place is a good thing to do. And, and this idea that under the sun there is this very real thing which is called religious worship that's been around since the beginning of recorded human history. We should be fairly tentative about this. Even considering this without any kind of belief in the gods themselves. Logic alone here sees that there's some benefits to prudent walking when you come into a church. Drawing near to hear, it's wise to learn and listen when you come into these things. There are certain bits of wisdom you can get from even false religious systems. And then processing that, I think, through God's word is still really important, and God's word, I think, is where we need to put our standard for some of those things. Or to give the sacrifice of fools. This is an odd kind of passage, but it starts to make more sense when you think of it in terms of a logical, earthly kind of religion and not something that's based on God's revelation. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, which would be giving something up but actually making a fool of it. So what is a sacrifice of fools? Um, I think it's, it's the opposite of hearing and listening when you go into a church. It's to go into a church and what you give is your mouth and you just start talking. And f- frankly, we see this now and then. People come to Bible study for the first time and what comes out of their mouth just really makes us cringe a little bit because that's their sacrifice. They're coming in and they're thinking they're giving this wisdom to the group, but they obviously haven't read what they're talking about, right? So it's just one of those kind of pieces of wisdom. The word sacrifice there in the Hebrew is zaba. The kind of sacrifice that's, that's being referred to here, the sacrifice of fools, is the kind of sacrifice that in Jewish worship would be the, the sacrifice that got shared as a meal or a way of sacrifice. So sharing the words of fools. You come into a church and you share stuff with other people that's just kind of like your mouth yapping. So going to temple meant giving sacrifice in any of these religions around Solomon. It still means that when we go into a temple, we give something, we sacrifice. It shouldn't be the sacrifice of fools, just our mouths, but it should be the sacrifices of holiness. So today a lot of people might go to church, but only on very special occasions or when it's convenient for them. Others might attend church faithfully, but they might do it out of habit. This is what Chuck Smith says. But even as they sit in the service, their mind is out on the golf course or where they want to go for lunch. You can tell this is Southern California. Though their body is in the church, their heart is someplace else. Many people settle for a half-hearted relationship with God. The sacrifice of fools. You go in and you're given something that's not worth very much. I hope that helps at least. One test of this is to ask where in the scripture it calls for Christians to do this thing, right? So if we're doing, if you're going to a church or you're going to a place where they're doing something, it's a good kind of measure to say like, how does this relate to what the scriptures tell us to be doing when we gather and meet? What does the word of God say we need to do? What is it that we, are, that we have said that we need to do? And where do those th- two things interact with each other? So if your church's primary focus is on bingo night, that might be something that where that question doesn't match up or there's not a match. What is it we're supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be doing what is good, what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. We hear that sort of thing and then we do it. First Samuel 15, 22, "...has the Lord d- great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord." Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen to the fat of rams. Same kind of idea. Sacrifice of fools or the sacrifice of wise people. So even under the sun, even without any revelation from God, false worship or is kind of a foolish thing. It's not worth anybody's time, even for unbelievers. Verse 2, don't be rash with your mouth. Again, I think this is very similar to the sacrifice of fools. Don't be rash with your mouth. Let your not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So what do we do? How can we be prudent? The first way you're prudent is don't open your mouth and make stupid vows. Well, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And then you don't do them. That's worse than if you never said you would do those things. So rule number one when we walk into a house of worship, a house of God, any God, maybe be quiet and listen. Be patient. I like to think that when people first start coming to a fellowship, take six months and just be blessed before you offer to do anything. And just enjoy the blessings of the fellowship in that group before you start thinking, how can I help and what can I do? So be patient. And rule number three, there's no need to be making vows. And this doesn't just come in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Matthew 12, 36 says, "Uh, I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken for by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. So just this idea that we always think about what our words are and what matters. Verse 3, For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by as many words. So also in verse 7, For the multitude of dreams and many words, there's also vanity, but fear God. For now dreaming is paired with foolish wordiness. That's interesting. If a dream comes through much activity, so much can be said with so few things, but how can a dream be bad, right? So if a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by as many words, there seems to be a pairing here of some sort. So, I'm going to skim through this a little bit just for the sake of time tonight. A lot of times I think, and this is again without God's revelation, but just looking at the world at large, Solomon notices that there's people out there that, have dreams and share those dreams with people and it seems to connect that with activity and then people will say things a lot of things and there's a and again this is just this thin line because as believers we dream all the time we not only have dreams in that sense but we also like think wouldn't it be cool to do this or should we take this trip next year what can we do for the kingdom of God how can we share how can we do fellowship how can we share the word with people and so these dreams are wonderful But dreams always kind of begin with a dreamer, right? And and outside of God, those dreams can be really empty and vain things. We would today call them big talkers. Somebody that says, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do this. But none of those things come to be. And that's different than a godly person saying, we should try this, we should try that, we should try this. And some things work and some things don't. But you're looking for the Holy Spirit through that. But there is something to say that when you're kind of all over the place and there's nothing solid there, that that's kind of a foolishness, right? So dreams can be wonderful, but they can also be vain and they don't fulfill or do any things. And sometimes there's earthly thinking around dreaming is this, dreaming big is a really big idea or big thing. Uh, I think Edgar Allan Poe says this really well. Deep into the darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. There's a kind of darkness to just sitting around and dreaming stuff up, right? And in under the sun or in the world, that can be kind of an odd thing. So um, Oprah Winfrey says this too, the biggest adventure you can take is to live the life of your dreams, right? Right? And the world says stuff like that. And there's many words associated with it. Lots of people say stuff around that. Um, just look deep enough and follow your bliss. You know, those kinds of things. And that is under the sun. There's a worldview there that Solomon's capturing with such a simple sentence. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by as many words. It's just foolishness. And it goes on. So now Solomon is not only a depressing writer, he's now the killer of all dreams. And so we're just at this point where thank you Solomon very much. He's a shatterer of dreams. So again, earthly wisdom would support that a wise person just gets a little jaded when they meet people like this. They're all over the place. They're big talkers. um, But there isn't much behind them. So successful people consistently accredit their success to a dream they had when they were young but for every successful person how many people do not fulfill their dreams and get through life and that's a huge question there's there's some that get there and there's some that don't but the world loves to prop up the dreamer and to make it the, the thing to be there you know there's other folks that say like the harder i work the luckier i get and i think that's a little more realistic like if you want to get towards that dream there's a lot of hard work that gets there So in the church, we often think we have plans, and that those plans are better than what the church is actually doing, and that can create an actual discontentment. Again, bingo nights. If we're not having enough of them, the bingo lovers get mad. Um, And that just creates kind of this thing. So, we keep moving through this. Verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vowed. Better 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 not to vow than to vow and not pay. So this is an interesting concept because we see it throughout the Bible from a biblical perspective, but Solomon's giving it from an under-the-earth perspective or under-the-sun perspective. Even for unbelievers to promise something and not keep your promise is foolish. And it's foolish because he doesn't necessarily give a reason for why it's foolish, making a vow to God. But even paying what you have vowed, like when you take a loan out from somebody and you don't pay back the loan, that's a foolish way to live because it's going to get you in trouble. Pay your debts. It's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Heaven and earth will pass away. God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away. Matthew twenty four thirty five. But my words will never pass away. If we're a reflection of God to the people around us and they can't take our word at face value, that's trouble. So if we're saying something or are promising something to somebody, they need to be able to trust us to whatever degree we're going to represent God. So when God's people break their word, that becomes entirely problematic because we're shattering an image of honesty and trustworthiness that other people need to have. Pay what you vowed. Maybe a reference to borrowing money. He could be uh, indirectly pointing to people that are kind of making promises in the church that they don't keep. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there and then they never show up, better to just say, I don't know if I'll be there or not, and let people kind of deal with that. So breaking our promise becomes something that's a consistent piece of wisdom we get throughout the Bible, and this particular verse is reinforced throughout the Bible. Jesus says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. If a man vows to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself to a pledge, Numbers 30, verse 2, And he he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Keep your promises. Keep your words. A lot of civic strife comes because you get fools that don't keep their word. I mean, that's pretty much the court system. All legal kind of civic law and that sort of thing comes out of people not keeping their words. Verse 6 then. Don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? Don't tempt the Lord God Almighty. Have you All of these beginning verses have to do with controlling the tongue. That under the sun, that it, he's noticing there are people that are just, they say more than they are. And that's a foolishness, and that's not necessarily a great way to live. And you don't necessarily need a revelation to come to these conclusions. So he's, again, seeing these kinds of pieces put together. So, it brings into doubt the nature of God when a Christian breaks their word, or changes their mind on their word. Uh, not one word has failed when it comes to God. Yet his believers can break them all the time. Rash words in verse 4. God takes no pleasure in it. Now excuses get used then in verse 4 too. And with an excuse, don't let God be angry at what you're doing. So sometimes our words can get, in, uh, get us not only into trouble in an he- earthly sense but can also create a reaction where suddenly catastrophe is waiting around the corner because, in part, the Lord needs to teach us temperament of our tongue. So we get in trouble because of our tongue. In summary, verse 7 comes up and he sums it around. For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. So he comes to his first conclusion. You look at the last two verses of this book. One of his conclusions is we need to just fear God. So there's no wisdom in acting in such a way where we become foolish. And we can know that not because necessarily God tells us to not be foolish, but because under the sun it makes no sense. It doesn't serve us to be foolish people and to be rash with our tongues. And the fear of God is the thing that kind of controls our tongues. Whether or not there is a God, fearing God and living under his law helps us to be a wiser people and more successful in our relationships and in our dealings in life there's a benefit into being somebody who keeps their word. And that benefit has nothing to do with spiritual stuff. It's just if people can trust you, you're going to be more successful. So, so far looking at these kinds of temple people, Solomon in verse 1 sees hypocrites, in verse 2, babblers, in verse 3, dreaming fools, verse 4, vow breakers, verse 5, debtors, verse 6, excuse makers. So, So summing it up, Solomon's not seeing a lot of good things in the church. He's seeing a lot of not-so-great attributes, but for each one of those, he's pairing it with something that's a positive attribute. If you're going to be one of these church people, at least be an honest church people. The end result is a kind of religion for all these negatives that's kind of vanity itself. There is also vanity. So even that kind of vanity that's hurtful. But fear God, which puts you in a right position. If we fear God, we're more humble, and we don't do all of those things. And that causes us to change or act in a different way. So whether or not we believe in God, fearing God is something that actually draws the right behavior out of people. Behavior that King Solomon wants to deal with. And I like the many words thing in verse 7. And I don't know about you all, but now and then you hear people where they pray with just more words than normal human beings would ever use. Or what you would call a windy prayer. Uh, which is interesting because some of the most powerful prayers in the Bible are very succinct par- prayers. Like, I have sinned, <laughs> right? Those kinds of prayers can be really succinct and really simple. God doesn't need poetry coming out of our mouth, He needs honesty coming out of our mouth. He doesn't need babbling, He needs clarity. So, when we really want to, do we really want to be using many words in verse 7 when it comes to dealing with God? That's almost like interrupting God. Or do we want to use simple words? So, seeing hypocrisy in the temple, Solomon advises against it, and he turns to politics in verse 8. If you see the oppression of the poor. Remember in chapter 4 we dealt with oppression. So he's coming back to that topic, and he's going to go into it a little deeper. If you see the oppression of the poor, and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, don't marvel at the matter. For high officials... Uh, for high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all, even the king has served from the field. If I look around, I'm going to see lots of oppression. The world has tons of it. It's a mess. And the, the phrase, don't marvel at the matter, that's an interesting piece of wisdom. Remember we looked at oppression and last time you dealt with it, it was kind of like there are people that get really worked up about others being oppressed, and they live for it, it becomes almost like their God, their source of worship. His advice then, in in conclusion on that, is when you see oppression in the world, don't marvel. Don't be surprised by it. It shouldn't shock you. Um, God supports the powerless and helps the powerless and, and will be their God and uses his agents or should use the church to help with that sort of thing. But we don't give over our emotions to that sort of situation. Instead, it's much better to give our resources and our time to solving the situation. But we don't just sit and marvel at it. Marveling is a vain activity. It doesn't do anybody any good to have your jaw dropped and be stunned by things. Matthew 25, 40. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Jesus teaches very clearly it's what we do for the oppressed, not the marvel we have at the situation that matters. A godly person does something about it. An ungodly person, from Solomon's perspective, is that we tend to look at these horrible situations in life and we want to, we almost use it like a conversation tool. We run around telling everybody about these bad things and, and it's almost like gossip, right? You, you have something to say when you meet with people. But don't marvel at it. We're consistently called the love, care, support, give, host, cook awesome barbecues for each other. Those are things we can do in provision for other people, but we're not supposed to marvel at things when we see oppression because it's everywhere and it's always going to be on earth. Remember, Solomon is talking from an earthly perspective here, and so am I, right? And that's why I'm bringing in Jesus' words. Like As a believer, we take a slightly different take on this, right? But he's coming at this from a very earthly position. This is under the sin. The question then is that idea of marveling, and it suggests an attitude, not an action. So to be emotionally elevated over abstracted problems is a kind of hypocrisy too. This is super insightful. In fact, I don't know a lot of philosophers that take on this phenomena, where people get really, really excited about a political cause, but they don't actually do anything about the political cause, right? Or they might throw 25 bucks a month towards it because they saw the TV commercial, They don't actually go out and serve or do anything. So as long as I can keep problems at arm's length and feel like I do something about it, then I can make myself feel better. right? So the way Solomon comes at this is really interesting. The word marvel there is "tama" In the Hebrew, it's to be amazed, astonished, or wonder at something. It's the disposition of the self-righteous, this idea that we can marvel at something. Phrase there, high official watches over high official. Um, Solomon's running a government, and he recognizes that there has to be some sort of government, and in the absence of the government, you're just going to get power taking over. It's usually some forced power. So any kind of government that pe- that people live in peace under is going to have layers and layers of government officials that don't actually make things. They just consume things. We call this taxes. So don't be surprised at that either. Don't be surprised that governments are inefficient because they do. You're going to have these officials that eat and take and take money out of the system. Um, But we always have them because there has to be some sort of order to it. So even kings, that last phrase there, the profit of the land is for all, even kings, kings don't grow any food, but they still eat food. So you've got all these people that eat food that don't make it. And that's just part of how life is. Don't marvel at that either. Don't marvel at inefficient governments. It's a really interesting take. It's interesting. There's a, in science, religion, and development, there's some considerations over what should be happening with government right now. And I just, I know we have some folks that really like kind of watching for prophecy fulfillment. This is interesting. What the, the Institute says, um, Solomon is saying that religion can be kind of a a human endeavor. And Solomon calls it out that it can also be hypocritical. The Institute puts hope inside this this phenomena. Listen to this. In speaking of religion, the Institute is not concerned with sectarian movements. Rather, its interests lie with the impact of religion on the heritage of humanity as a whole, the scope of the study that is equally occupied science. In addition to being considered sources of knowledge... The two are regarded as forces, both spiritual and material, that are responsible for the progress of the human soul in society. It's interesting that the Institute for Studies in Global Prosperity recognized that religion serves a role that has nothing to do with God. It's actually good for society. And this is kind of phenomenal because when we come at religion or we study the Word, we're doing it for a very in faith-based reasons almost entirely. But you have these institutes that recognize that there are some benefits to these institutions that have nothing to do, directly speaking, with the faith that the people have. But there's an order to it. From its document called Reflections on Governance, attempts to advance human prosperity and well-being can no longer ignore this reality. The unification, harmonization, and coordination of human activities on local, national, and global levels is now imperative for human progress. Approaches to governance at all levels must therefore be informed by a recognition of the organic unity and interdependence, or the oneness of humanity. The goal of this institute, who cares about religions, as long as all the religions agree in the oneness of humanity. And these people are driving large numbers of global initiatives right now to try to create that. So for those of you folks watching Prophecy, you'll recognize that that sounds oddly dissimilar similar to what the world says. Here's the deal. Solomon says, don't worry about the fact that governments are going to do that. It's what governments do. It's how they operate. Don't marvel at it. Don't be stunned by it. And they're going to create, frankly, as they create a one-world government, they're also going to create more oppression in the process because they have to oppress people to get governance to work. It's how that happens. So when we marvel at those things, we're actually being amazed by evil. Think about that. You're you're letting your wonder be drawn towards evil instead of the beautiful creation that God has made. Instead of celebrating the maker, you're getting anxious about what what humans have done. And that's the wrong place to put our wonder. Likewise, when Jesus was amazed... Uh, just the things he got amazed at because I think this is a tough concept because we want to get amazed at what's on the news. But what did Jesus get amazed by? He was amazed by the widow that gave her faith. He was arguably amazed by the those that were weak and downtrodden and the level of faith they had. And he gives that he, he was marveled by people who gave despite not having anything to give. So the things that Jesus got wonder about was the humans that did the simple, wonderful things that were acts of faith. And he would point it out. This person has more faith than I've seen in my entire lifetime. You know. And it's because of this person's faith that this is going to change their life. What should we marvel at? We should marvel at acts of faith that we see in the people around us. The wonderful little gifts. Grant cutting up vegetables so we could eat them. What a a thing to marvel at. Grant made food. That's an amazing piece of growth in this person's life. (laughs) We should marvel at that. And how much more worthy is that to marvel at than the things of evil happening in the world? And that's not a call to inaction. And I I hope that other Jesus thing points that out. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. Jesus, in fact, commanded the opposite. He said we should do those things. Because as we do those things to the least of these, we do them to God himself. That's an odd balance to strike. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to fa- pass, but the end will, come, will not come immediately. That's from... Uh, oh, goodness, I didn't put the book. It's chapter 29, verse 9, whatever it is, but I, don't, I didn't put the book. Sorry about that. Oh, Luke 21... Verse 9, at some point we will all be oppressed by a government that, that figures it out. It's just going to happen. Then Luke goes on to say, but before all things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before the kings and rulers for my namesake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. You're going to get to share your testimony. Don't be amazed when there's oppression because it's coming your way too. Let's choose to marvel at what God's doing right It's just a wonderful thing. I remember we went to a Big daddy weave concert and this was in Virginia right or West Virginia poorest place in the world the concert was in the high school gym mm-hmm. right and these people you when we walked in we were we came from the university part of the Appalachian Mountains people that came to the Big daddy weave concert did not like we were there to volunteer with like the the world vision stuff you know handing out the kid volunteers, but the audience that came to this thing were like the locals and they were not wealthy people, but they were joyful people. And what struck them is we get done with that halfway through the concert. I don't know if you've been to one of these concerts and they try to get you to sponsor a child, right? At the, after that gets done, he gets back up on the stage and he's like, you know, I got to tell you guys, like human for human, we just had the most people get sponsored at this event person for by percentage wise than we've ever seen. And it was stunning. Like, and and Steph probably remembers better exactly what he said, but he was like, you know, what's amazing to me is you guys know what it takes to take care of people. Like you guys know how to take care of people. And these were not the people that you would think that would have pocketbooks ready to sponsor children, but they did it anyways. Jesus looked up and saw the rich pulling their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor woman widow putting in two mites. So Jesus said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. Don't be marveled at evil. Be marveled at that. The generosity of the poor. I remember I was doing a mission trip in Haiti. We're sitting in the, we crawl up into the backwoods, this horrible hike through the hills. And they are, absolutely impoverished. They've cut down all their trees because they needed it for fuel. So they're living on kind of this red dirt stuff, trying to get something to grow out of the ground. We get there, and they just wanted to celebrate that believers came from a different country. So they killed their goat and fed it to us. Two of the ladies walked the entire day to get ice and bring it back in a cooler So because they heard that in America, we put ice in our drinks. I've never wanted to eat a meal less than taking the food from these people. And we were told like we got there and like, they're like, they just, this is what it means. This is, they're so happy to see you. They wanted to do this for you. And so we like, you know, later when we got back home, we like mailed them goats (laughs) <laughs> like you, you can work with the missions organization. It's like, okay, we're going to hook these people back up. And maybe they knew that, like that's really cynical. Like maybe they knew that would happen, but I don't think they did. I think they just loved the fact that believers, there's other Christians coming to see us and we're going to take care of them. And they literally gave everything they had. And it made us feel like we need to be more generous. Don't marvel at evil. I know I'm spending a lot of time with that one. So this is it for t- Solomon's tour of all the earthly philosophies. Like, he's kind of gone through, like, here's the different types of people that are on the world under the sun, and it's a turning point in the book, so he's going to finish this chapter kind of reviewing these conclusions that he's made, and rewashing some of these ideas. So he revert, all, everything in four and a half chapters, he kind of comes back to them, and he, he addresses the vanity of success. and provides proverbs that are kind of getting into the evils of the world. So to sum up up to this point, we can kind of come to church as the world does, walk pridefully, add some extra stuff to the Bible, be rash with our mouths, not keep our word, dream big dreams, not fear God and marveling at evil. Or we can come into the house of God and walk prudently, listen first, keep our tongue, keep our word, follow God's call, fear God, and marvel at the things that are good. And he's put this kind of position up, and you're starting to see where he's going to get to his conclusion. Verse 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase, this is also vanity. He's coming back to the idea of wealth. If you love the money, it will never be enough. If you love abundance or growing things, building a big business, the business will never get big enough. It's just the truth. He's bringing in these truthly conclusions. It's not worth it. People who worship their money, when that money fails them, they think their life is over. The only thing worse than being poor is to be rich and realize that you're still poor. Right? It's just a horrible moment. Matthew six twenty one: For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is money a worthy idol? Heck no. Under the sun. It doesn't do any good at all, right? We were talking about this kind of on the trip that real wealth has to do with how many people you know, how much, not how much money you have in your account. Real wealth is in the people that love you. Real wealth is the number of people that show up when things aren't going well in your life, right? Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. That's great, great turn of phrase. So what profit have owners except to see them with their eyes? You make more money, more people want to take your money. I've learned this the hard way with the IRS. The more money I make, the higher percentage they take. They don't just take more based on what I make. They take a higher percentage of what I make. It's horrible. It's like a greedy government. But there's greedy people out there too. When your goods increase, there's going to be lots of people that want to eat your goods. Lisa, how many emails have you gotten from politicians that want your money? Right? They just keep coming. They all want your money. 70% of all lottery winners, according to Cleveland.com. This is almost a cliche at this point. They win the lottery and then they got all these new relatives that show up out of the woodwork. The higher rates of drug abuse, overspending, taxation, divorce, and murder from lottery. Like winning the lottery is one of the greatest curses people can have. Because most people don't know what to do with money. Real family shows up like this too. Charles Conrad, the writer, notes, once a family and friends learn that the windfall has come to their family member, they have expectations of what they should be entitled to. And many of these expectations are are simply not rational. So the advice of this article is if you win the lottery, get a lawyer (laughs) and get a financial manager and get the money out of your pocket as quickly as you can. Get it into investments. So Joe Corrienti of Scotch Trade says, the winner of the lottery needs to figure out what to do with their day-to-day cash, how much they need, and get the rest of it out of their hands. Insurance needs, emergency needs, before anything else. If you win money, get to work. This is what Solomon said. The more money you have, the more work you have. Strong temptation for humanity. Strong temptation for the church. Churches start asking for money. They shouldn't be. God's not broke. If you need that much money and you can't raise it, maybe God's not in it. That's a tough reality pastors don't want to hear. How would we ever fundraise? Don't fundraise. Why do you need to fundraise? Do you think God can't handle it? What would you rather have, a huge church of shallow people or a large church or a small church of people absolutely on fire for Christ? Honestly, where do you want to be when it comes to the Holy Spirit? So Luke 16, verse 13, or verse 14. Pharisees who love money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Do we have religious leaders that love money? Yeah, we sad. It's We do. And it's, it's not a good thing. Verse 12, the, sh, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. <laughs> I, this is really, I don't know, if I'm, I'm explaining this, maybe I'm over explaining it. Verse 12, it's like, if you work a hard day's work and you go to bed, if you hike for 10 miles a day, you sleep like a baby. No guilt, you're not laying awake, worrying about things, there's no stress, you work hard and you sleep well, But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. If you got all this responsibility on how to manage all these things, you stay awake at night thinking about it all, as you should. Forbes research suggested that authority may be linked to depression, that CEOs may be depressed at more than double the rate of the general public, which is already about 20%. So higher than that. Timothy 6.10 the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many gr- griefs people think they want to have more money and it doesn't quite work that way right? it's more, it's more burdensome and it's more sleep again Solomon's coming to all this and I'm just going to keep coming back to it under the sun this is the work of the world without any intervention from God it's how things go. And again, with every one of these things, I think we could absolutely flip it on its head when that wealth gets used for the way God calls people to use it for. Now, you look at Joseph of Arimathea. You know, there's a number of people in the New Testament that have resources and they use it to host believers. And, they, and the church largely gets built up around these hosts in each of the cities. Verse 13, back under the sun, there is a severe evil which I've seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. This is a severe evil. Evil not defined by God's law, but just evil evil. Like, it's a horrible thing when people keep for themselves everything they make and it actually hurts them in doing it. Riches like this is not a good thing. It's inherently wrong. question is, why is it wrong? Why do we know... Why do we all know that hoarding is kind of an evil thing to do? Is there, you know, we all kind of expect that if somebody's rich, they're generous. Don't we? Why, is it, why do we all kind of know that it's evil? Like heuristically, we just understand that. It's evil to hoard your money. And then you get spoiled kids. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his, he's got nothing to live for, leave for his kids, because of all this misfortune. It's common. Um, for rich people to squander money, sometimes they come into it and they don't know what to do with it. Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Solomon, I think, is still thinking of Rehoboam. Money is a lot like a tool; it's not evil, and I don't. I hope nobody hears this passages that way. It's not bad to have money; it's a tool, it's a resource. you you're given your life; that's a tool. You're given. The strength of your hands, that's a tool you can use. Some people are given wealth. Hoarding it makes it an unused tool. And hoarded money doesn't do anything. And that's the part of that's what makes it then evil. It's the action not taken with that thing. So tithing is a practice when you get to under heaven instead of under the sun. God tells us to tithe. So we don't hoard. We let go of the first fruits of what we have. And there's a reason for that. It has something to do with our heart. And the opposite is being explained under the sun by Solomon. Hoarding everything is actually something that makes us into worse people. It's an extreme evil. It all belongs to God in the first place, so why would you cling to it? It's not ours. It's a great attitude to have. Matthew 13, The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and make it unfruitful. Under heaven? We know that money can get in the way of spirituality. It can get in the way of our relationship with God. It can also be something that, when we know how to deal with it, is actually something that really enables us to be generous and care for one another. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return, that he we're talking about is the rich person, to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. This is the biblical way to say you can't take it with you. Hoard all you want, you're gonna die, you can't take it with you. Verse 16, this is also a severe evil. Just exactly as he came shall he go, and what profit has he who labored for the wind? So, again, under the sun, you can't take it with you. And that's bad, <laughs> like spoken like a true rich man. I'd like It's a really bad thing, you can't take it with you. Like That seems to be an evil under the sun. You can bury, so a lot of societies would bury things with their people, like the Egyptians you take that wealth and you'd bury it with the dead body like they could somehow take it with them. Uh, You know, Jimi Hendrix was buried with his guitar. You know, there's this idea that we put objects in graves with people, uh, which is this, you don't need to be entirely spiritual to recognize that it kind of stinks that you can't take your favorite stuff with you. You know, you come into the world naked, you leave naked. So it doesn't matter what you accumulate. And Solomon's saying that's kind of a bummer, that's an evil. Verse 17, all his days, he also eats darkness, in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Again, we're still talking about this person that's hoarding. Um, and it's laboring for the wind. And I think that's one of those things that Solomon's really come back to this idea. It's one thing to work and provide for yourself. It's another thing to work to where you've lost your life at the other end. Revelations 3.17 you say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Money doesn't solve spiritual problems. Verse 18. Here's what I've seen. It's a good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him for it is his heritage. And that's the summary of it all. You know what? You got enough to eat, you got enough to drink, and you got enough to enjoy the good of your labor. You can take a trip to Glacier National Park because you've worked really hard the rest of the year. And that's a good thing. And, and and again, this is just worldly wisdom, right? Like he can see that that's a true thing. And we're still under the sun, it's a summary again, and then we get this objective truth that he just plops down right in the middle of it. This is the truth verse 18. This is a good thing. We don't need a revelation from God to see that this is a good thing. Enjoy the money, but don't live for it. Separate that somehow. He doesn't get us quite to the spiritual thing of live for God, but he does get us to the point of living for money is a pitiful thing. And it's not good. The best existence the ungodly can possibly get to is to work hard enough to enjoy the work of their hands. Really, there's a kind of joy in that, and people can spend decades doing that. We work, we have a weekend. We work, we have a weekend. And then you do 52 of those, maybe you have a whole week to yourself. Matthew 6:24. nobody can serve two masters. You either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. You can't do it. And again, I think the distinction there is whether or not we serve it. Do we live for it or do we live for God? Verse 19, for as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift from God. And and I think when we're under the sun and Solomon says it's a gift from God, he's basically saying, this is something I can't understand with any other rationale other than that this has to be from God. This alone, that there's something to this. Appreciate your blessings. Count them one, two, three. Isn't that a kid's song? Riches don't bring meaning to life, um, but they can provide comfort in life. Don't hoard them. Don't live for them. Verse 20, For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. The only way to enjoy the gifts is to not dwell on them. Isn't that an interesting thing? that he comes to that. The only way to really be rich is to not live for riches. And the only way to really enjoy those riches is to not think about them. I think that's just an interesting kind of a take there. He will not dwell unduly on the days of his life. You can enjoy your life, but don't think about how long you're little. Have you ever met people that unduly dwell on how long they're going to live? They spend weeks researching diets so they can squeak out another half year of life, right? And, and, and Grant and I joke and we say you eat so horrible that even if you gain two years at the end of your life from your healthy eating, maybe it's not worth the trade. I'll have my little Debbie snack cake. I say that, but right now I'm not eating anything that's not good for me. So we, we want to not dwell on how long we live, but maybe we want to live in a healthy way. And and there's this kind of thing because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. If you have something in your life that God's given you some direction to pursue and we keep ourselves busy with it, what a blessing that is. And Solomon's giving credit to God for this because it doesn't seem to be under the sun, right? There's this kind of reality to it. So this is the sum total of wisdom from chapter five or under the sun thinking. Life is full of toil and then you die and then chapter five, but don't think about it right? That's the solution. What a, it's a little, come on, Solomon. It has to get better than that. The only work there's, it, life is work and getting some fulfillment out of that. Your life is meaningless. It's all vain. And then you got this like work cycle that you go through. And the best you can hope for is to be able to work with your hands and make enough money to enjoy the benefits of that. Under the sun. We've come a long way since chapter 1, right? All these different worldviews kind of come to that place, and he's arrived there from a fairly logical perspective. Now, modern philosophy would say he didn't use proper syllogisms, but if you just give him a little bit of grace then that he's writing at, what are we at, About 1500 B.C., 2000 B.C.? I should have looked up the dates. This is a very old document. This is pre-modern philosophy, Um, But he has used a fairly logical, reasonable process and he's put in a lot of premises that we could disagree with at any point, but there's not any one of those points that you can really disagree with them. It's fairly easy to see that, yes, I see these kinds of people that live like this or serve this or work for this. Or, or they dole themselves to these ideas. There are these people that are out, are out there that are like that, but he's all re- also recognizing at the end of this journey, there are these people that go into churches that are hypocrites, but the opposite of that might be that s- there might be some people that go into the house of God that are not hypocrites. And there's some people that seem to enjoy their lives and they're happy, and it looks like a blessing from God, because it doesn't seem to be something under the sun. There's something different about this very small group of people that he's started to notice that live and eat and, and enjoy life and have fruit and benefit from their labors, and they seem to be content with that. Where does that come from? And that's an interesting question that we'll get to. I love the idea of how is that working for you? And in each of these chapters kind of talked about how do we deal with or how do we build relationship with people or get deeper with people in conversation. And you meet people that are kind of strolling through life, even people that go into the house of God, other Christians. And I think it's one thing to understand, are you happy? Have you gotten contentment? Is there joy in what you're doing? And I think sometimes can, people can roll through that work life and never stop to think, am I finding joy in life along the way? And that's a really dangerous question because what if your answer is No. I feel like I'm just in the grind and I haven't thought about it for 10 years. That gets you to do things like quit your job. Like, I'm gonna move on, I'm gonna do something different. How is that working for you? Right? And I, and I, and I love that story where we went into our, like our class reunion and we found people and they're telling us about, about what they did. And you just had that question Are you happy? Are you getting everything you want out of this? And I think for Solomon's chapter five people, even those people going into the house of gods, right? Is it getting you happy? Is it doing everything? You're a a faithful Muslim. Is it bringing joy into your life? Isn't that the outcome of what we should be getting out of those experiences? And those are things that we can ask not to try to ask a trick question to get somebody to say, but to just get to know people and to find out what makes them tick and what doesn't make them tick, Um, at least up to chapter five. So we're done with chapter five move on to chapter 6 and that will be the end of our Bible retreat chapters 7 through 12 we'll be putting up that were recorded like 5 years ago so you'll get 2 very different teachers with the same voice um, but I'm a different person than I was 5 years ago so I probably teach differently uh, let's pray, dear Lord we just thank you for this chapter uh, we thank you Lord that we may think we notice or see things that are new or different uh, and it is encouraging to me that Solomon saw those exact same things thousands of years ago. Uh, and he wrote them down. Uh, Lord, there really isn't anything hidden, uh, and there is nothing new under the sun uh, that people have lived for themselves or lived following after vanity in a number of different ways, and they've done it for thousands of years. It's just what people do. Lord, as you came and you incarnated, and you died for our sins, and you came. Uh, Lord, for us as a propitiation for our sins so that you could bring us into you and into your kingdom. You created a not-so-under-the-sun option in life. We have a choice we can make to not go into the -the under-the-sun mistake that thousands of people have done for thousands of years. Millions of people have done. Thank you for giving us an out. Lord, when we feel the grind when our work gets tough, when our jobs get uh, onerous, Lord, help Thank you that we don't live for those jobs. We live for you. And we have something that's under heaven that we can live for and serve. And Lord, these other things are things we just do. Uh, Lord, thank you for the joy that you give us, the the abiding joy that you give us. Uh, Not an emotional feeling, but a sense of peace about who we are, what we're doing, and where we're at. Thank you, Lord, for a, a, a stable and a sound mind that we can think through tough issues, Lord, and we still have our faith in you and our hope in you and our trust and our joy is in you. In Jesus' name, amen.